I could only imagine myself, you know, on a beach somewhere uh, where I would love to be right now. Hello, listeners. I am your host, Ziad Matar, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Wirelessly Yours podcast, where I talk about everything tech, business, and design. On each episode, I will take you through how cutting-edge technologies, emerging business models, and the latest design trends are transforming our world and shaping the future. You will also get to hear from my guests about their opinions on global developments and the opportunities they create, as well as their impact on society. Stay tuned for more. Wirelessly yours. Ladies and gentlemen, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Wirelessly Yours podcast. Today, we're going to talk about freedom, about travel, but all about healthcare and how healthcare enables all of this, especially in days like these. And joining me are two very important people from the healthcare and technology space, uh, very intercontinental in their own way. So that's why we're going to talk about travel a little bit. Uh, I'll start with Ossa, Ossa Norkren, who's the founder and CEO of Trice, um, based out of San Diego and Stockholm and around 43 other locations around the world. And Gogarin Oliver, also known as G, who joins us from Boston today and has a big operation down in India, supporting a lot of the work that happens in healthcare and artificial intelligence behind the scenes. Uh, welcome, Osa and G. Thank you for Thank joining you. me. And uh, as always, I start my podcast with talking about backgrounds and uh, asking you to talk about your backgrounds. You can talk about your uh, human background, your educational background, but also about What's, what's behind you right now? What's you behind us? <laughs> point anything uh, special? Sure. Uh, so alphabetical order. Let's start with you, Osa. Well, thank you, Siad, for having me here. My name is Asa. Right behind me is uh, Beige Wall. I'm at the, an office in Shista in Stockholm. Uh, what I am about, I'm an entrepreneur in heart and soul. And I'm currently working on doing my best with the help of our business to transform healthcare to make it more uh, equally available around the world. Um, my what I've done in my life is basically I've been on the very forefront of paradigm shifts when technology has spearheaded into our lives and made it possible for us to advance and evolve, and also figuring out how to turn that into to businesses. So I worked with when mobile telephony went from just uh, talking and texting into rich media. I worked when uh, print went from actually being paper-based or print-based to online. I did the same in music and later in film and television. So uh, I've practiced being at the very forefront, being beat up and um, figuring out how to help technology enhance our lives. And currently, I'm investing my heart and soul into healthcare. Very good. Glad to hear from you, Osa, and happy that you're in Chista, a place where I spent a lot of time back in. I know my this is your days. backyard. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, G, how about you? Very good. Yeah, thank you, Sia. Thanks again for uh, having me on this uh, panel. Uh, my name is uh, Gagron Oliver. I am. Uh, uh, talking to you today from my home in uh, the suburb of uh, Boston. So behind me, you're seeing uh, our uh, uh, family room, actually. And uh, I just uh, happened to convert this into my office uh, when work from home started. And uh, uh, you're seeing a room uh, beautifully designed uh, by my wife, actually. 
And uh, from a career background, uh, I am a software entrepreneur, uh, launched uh, four or five companies, angel investor in 25 plus companies. And uh, one of my former companies uh, was acquired by Thomson Reuters and we built it in a model where the market was in the US, but all the support came back from India. And uh, once we figured out that uh, successful formula, uh, I, we were like, okay, can we make this happen and help other companies? And uh, that's the genesis of my current company, Cape Start, where we help uh, companies, uh, mostly startups from the Cape in uh, India. And that's how the name Cape Start comes. So all through my career, uh, for whatever reason, uh, in fact, all the way starting from my uh, undergraduate, I remember uh, getting introduced to artificial intelligence the very first time when I was the secretary of uh, association and we were putting a seminar and one guy bailed at the last minute and I had to come up with a topic and I got a book and it talked about artificial intelligence and that was the first speech I gave on artificial intelligence without any preparation. And from then on, every single job, and this is you know really when AI was just happening, uh, 84, 88, and uh, every single job I had some AI component to it. Uh, so I have the pleasure of working in uh, speech recognition, natural language processing applications, and uh, in my current role, a uh, lot of healthcare applications, uh, which are getting automated using machine learning, uh, and uh, you know, uh, so, uh, computer vision and so forth. So, I'm looking forward to sharing some of that experience with you. Very good, and uh, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. And to talk a little bit about my background, I decided to wear it today since we were talking about travel. I could only imagine myself, you know, on a beach somewhere uh, where I would love to be right now. And uh, <laughs> also re remembering a little bit, you know, uh, linking into our discussions when we met Gogarin and. Uh, uh, I briefed you about our work that we do at, at Coconut and how it was uh, around jobs worth traveling for. And then, right. you know, we, we had to change all that tack because today, if I wanted to talk about the elephant in the Zoom, it is really the fact that uh, we, we, we can't travel as much as we, we could before. And uh, the real reason is, 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 is the virus outbreak and right. hence our, you know, move into the, the, the health tech discussion today and yeah. your opinions about that because at the end of the day as engineers as technologists it, it's uh, i see that some things could have been avoided or could be should be able to be resolved much quicker but we see that it takes a lot more time and we're in a bit of a, a dark or, or foggy situation still six seven months down the road so what's your point of view from the, the, the health tech uh, sector on this? First of all, there, there are many reasons not to over travel, not just a virus outbreak, right? We have to be responsible for the fight in, in so many possible ways. However, I love to travel. Every time I go either to just a central station or even a bus stop make me excited, you know? It's this sense of freedom and sense of being part of the world. And sometimes always like this emotion or feeling of, people not really knowing where you are, where you're supposed to go. So I'm totally addicted to traveling, uh, but we should all do it responsibly. I think there is uh, the, I mean, the, the virus is obviously 
terrible for all of us in so many ways, but it also comes with a few positive aspects, such as uh, another type of awareness on resources and what do we really need to, to travel for. Uh, for our company, for example, we uh, we provide a software for remote diagnostics in imaging. So basically being able to scan a patient in one location, sharing it with a different location to get an instant diagnose or just sharing the data with the patient so that the patient can go and get a, a diagnose uh, somewhere else. And we've struggled for the last 10 years convincing our customers that we don't have to come on site to install this thing. This can be done remotely. You just download it into your hospital server and connect your machines yourself and off you go. And this has been a hard battle for us, getting the customers, the healthcare systems to actually accept having a remote installation. They want us to come on site. They want us to hold their hands, maybe even bring a cake. And um, the, the upside of the virus here is like no one really wants to get on site. Right. So we've been managing to do actually better. Um, the virus have had a, a, a positive impact on our uh, capability, our abilities to help the healthcare providers out there. Uh, but we also don't have to travel anymore to, uh, so that, to, that, that to do has, our job. Uh, that reminds me of, uh, you know, a very important trip you made back in the days to Saudi Arabia, where you had to go really yeah. to... Uh, some very far places and uh, yes. and uh, you know kudos to you always uh, I take you as an example whenever I'm talking to an entrepreneur about how far sometimes you have to uh, go oh, yes. uh, in order to get your, uh, your, your to get your goals and your objectives achieved um, uh, yes, before that was, I, a, that I, was an interesting trip and, and, and I'm curious before I ask uh, Gogar in his opinion about this, but that's from the perspective of you rolling out the systems that in turn allow a lot more of the remote diagnostics. How much have you seen from that perspective an uptake in remote diagnostics and, and acceptability of them in light of the situation? So uh, it's uh, tremendous, actually. Um, when... COVID hit, I guess all of us kind of got a little bit paralyzed and you don't know, is this like how how with our business do with this? How can we actually contribute? So you think about it from do we hibernate or maintain now or do we accelerate? And our company decided to put in a really um, uh, really high gear. So we, we called our customers and figured out that some of the key issues that they struggle with or key problems that they struggle with during COVID, we could actually help. One of them being you don't want the, the patient to come into the hospital environment unless they really, really need to because the hospital environment is a high-risk environment in itself. So you don't want a patient in there that could actually uh, capture catch something uh, while visiting the hospital. You also had a work a workforce issue, meaning that a lot of people had to work from home because their children could not go to school and people were quarantined. So people under 40 could not work because they had to be home with children and people over 60 should not work. So we also got an extra shortage of doctors and nurses out in the hospital systems. And our technology could help uh, by providing access to physicians so that they can work from home. They could continue to read medical images from from home while they were with their children. And we can also, instead of sending a patient from a uh, primary care facility or a maternal 
practice into the hospital, we can actually send the image files and the reports uh, so that the physicians on site at the hospital could decide if it was really necessary for the, the patient to come in. So we decided to give some of our clinical applications in our system away for free during COVID. And we have seen a um, drastic increase in business during COVID, which is good, but it also, it's really to our core to feel that we can actually do something very, very meaningful. That's amazing. That's amazing. And G, from your perspective, I mean, uh, from one side, we, we need to send people to do certain things. And that applies even in the healthcare space, as also was saying. But also we can use a lot of artificial intelligence to replace the work of human beings. Where is CapeStart uh, doing a lot of work in general in that space pre-COVID? And how are things evolving with COVID? Right, right. No, I think... Uh... You know, uh, talking about uh, unlocking data, uh, healthcare definitely is the place where a lot of data is locked uh, because of a variety of reasons. I think a lot of useful information is dropped uh, in the form of unstructured text, like as, as I was saying, the images. The images have everything that you can look at it, and a physician is able to make a diagnosis. Uh, but what if the physician cannot handle the volume of images and things that yes. come in? And uh, that's where I think uh, uh, machine learning based uh, computer vision based system can come into uh, diagnosing and sometimes even predicting, right? Okay, this may be uh, the problem that's happening, right? So when COVID hit, I think uh, there are numerous areas where AI has uh, come into play. Uh, in my opinion, uh, all the medical research and uh, drug discovery uh, the pace in which it happened, uh, or at least promises of it happening, uh, to a large extent is because of natural language processing capabilities, which could immediately process uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, articles and scientific literature, medical diagnosis, and things like that, and come up with uh, uh, solutions, at least you know candidates that uh, researchers can further evaluate and uh, take note of. Uh, the second area where I am uh, seeing a lot of activity, especially with our pharmaceutical uh, companies, uh, customers, I should say, uh, is uh, patient feedback on what's happening. I think uh, uh, if you look at uh, drug safety, uh, typically, uh, whether the drug is safe or not, if there is a side effect is uh, reported most of the time in the past by the physicians after they see a patient, right? So they have to construct that over a period of time. What if there's a system where you could get an early signal of what's going on? And uh, where does uh, people go these days? If they find something, they go to the patient forums, they go to their social media, they sometimes call their local reporters. So these are all the non-scientific type of uh, information that people are not paying attention to. And those could be golden nuggets and uh, artificial intelligence is really helping to uh, extract some useful information from this uh, lot of public information which is available, which is helping in terms of keeping uh, drug safety and uh, getting a quick start for the physicians to focus on a certain area and uh, the applications are really immense. And, and I can I can I add there? Sure, yeah, interesting. I, I do believe also there's another area where artificial intelligence would really be helpful and it's really early in the image acquisitioning procedure. So ultrasound is becoming more and more common as a diagnostic tool in general. The machines are 
shrinking from monster Frankenstein looking huge machines into pocket sized machines so they can actually go to where the patient is and they're connected to networking. So uh, artificial intelligence can help the person actually holding the scanning, capturing the images to do a better job, which means that we can uh, have community health workers, uh, nurses, learning how to operate an ultrasound machine and acquire images. You don't have to have a specialist on site. And this will eventually lead to greater access to imaging. So imaging is part of diagnosing all major health diseases and issues that we're struggling with on the planet, like cancer, cardiovascular disease, maternal death. Imaging is needed for all of those, but only one third of the population in the world have access to imaging technology. It's not because there's no technology, it's because there is lack of people that can diagnose and scan properly. So if you can have AI showing the person that actually holding the scanner exactly how to scan, ship the data over the internet, and then have a first review by artificial intelligence and secondary by a medical expertise, you might have solved a huge problem in democratic access to healthcare. So augmenting yep, yep. the capabilities of human workers at the edge of the problem to diagnose end to end. and send the right end to end. Yeah, yeah. So there were some statistics uh, I uh, saw uh, in Boston. There's the Huntington Avenue where Harvard Medical School and several mm -hmm. uh, really popular hospitals are there. The number of radiologists in just that one square mile area is more than mm -hmm. the total number of radiologists available in the whole continent of Africa or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But the population is obviously disproportionate. Sense. And how do you now go and offer the same healthcare services a resident of Boston is able to get? And that's where I think machines are coming in and trying to do the triage, for example. And I mean, using uh, remote devices like what Asa was saying, and at least give an early sense. Okay, this is you know very serious. Take action immediately, and this one can wait tomorrow. Uh, even that this level of totally diagnosis doable. can save so many lives. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and Google, it's totally so doable. All the components are there. It's totally doable. Exactly. Yeah. And one big component, and this is where I want to hear a little bit from Gogarin, that at the end of the day, artificial intelligence can do so much. We see that, first of all, it cannot do it on its own. It needs a human. It, it, it could augment yeah. the human angle. But also, it requires a lot of human work in the background. It doesn't That's become right. intelligence completely on its own. Uh, we know yeah. that the machine has learned, but there's a lot of training involved. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it intersects particularly in the in the healthcare space? Okay. So healthcare, uh, you know, they call it the four Ps, right? That you have the patients, the providers, the payers, and then the pharma, the people who come up with the drugs and so forth. And all four uh, segments of uh, the healthcare market has so many problems that can be solved with artificial intelligence, right? And because if you look at it, all your text is part of in sitting in unstructured format, uh, your scientific articles, your patient records, and whatever people write. And then you go to uh, imaging and things like that we spoke about, they are all in a format where typically humans only can make sense. So the way uh, uh, we build solutions, uh, especially using machine learning, is machine learning is nothing different than how a human being learns. So you've uh, some child uh, starts learning English, and so he or she can now 
uh, read and write english but if you want that person uh, as they grow up if he or she wants to become a physician they study more and more medical things and uh, another person who is going in the engineering track they are trying more and more engineering so the more information you feed on a specific segment that's where uh, that specific software will become uh, super specialized in that and that is the level of technology that we have but to really train that i mean it has to be based on very specific use cases for instance cancer right you cannot design a system and say this can diagnose all types of cancer but uh, there are specialties if it's breast cancer you look for certain things if it is another another part of the body you look for different things if it's some type of cancer you look for different things so the way it's done uh, today at least and i think it will be uh, like this for a long time so you take existing diagnosis of uh, what happened and you have your medical report on patients and you need to get thousands of these things and you are going and uh, deploying human beings who are domain experts and in our case we hire uh, radiologists and radiology technicians as an example who would take each and every image and they would draw around it and say okay this is where i see the uh, cancerous cells and uh, this is the reason based on which i am making a diagnosis that it could be you know uh, cancer and uh, that diagnosis can be done only by trained people i mean for us all of them will look the same but for them they can look at it and find out and when they teach the machine by doing thousands of these cases when the next one comes the machine is able to predict at a high probability okay i think that is the cancer and because uh, before even uh, the radiologist or the uh, specialist get involved machine can actually draw around it it can measure it it can probably link that to several articles which are supporting as what it said and it can do a by rat square and uh, then uh, predict make the prediction although you know uh, whole uh, natural language whole artificial intelligence is all based on statistics so sometimes uh, Uh, it can also do false positives and false negatives and so the way we are seeing these things getting adopted really is uh, today uh, from a treatment perspective it's more like a second opinion or maybe doing an early triage as mm-hmm. opposed to straight away going into uh, prescribing if you will um, i think uh, fda is also approving a lot of these solutions uh, at very point solutions as i described and uh, i mean you know it makes sense even in physicians uh, there is a general physician who can give an overall picture of what's going on but then when it comes to specific diseases specific parts of the body we have super specialists who take care of it and uh, that's the way machines are also being built now interesting and that's a, that's a also, very yeah. that's a very advanced way of looking at it and you can you can just imagine the impact of what you is describing here but there are simpler things like For example, there's about 830 women or so dying every day from giving birth from very simple complications such as, you know, the vinical cord on the neck, the placenta is in the wrong location. And fetal growth is another example where basically you just need a measurement compared to a standard. Like you you measure the, the femoral length of the baby and that is compared to a standard. Very simple little AI, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. just tells that this... this fetus is not growing or is deviant from from the norm and hence that mom need to get into some special care or special treatment very simple ai but can have a tremendous impact on something so fundamental as allowing 800 women or so dying every day so it doesn't have to be very complicated to have a huge impact and that takes me uh, back a few years again because uh 
as as Gogolin said, you need to train, and for that you need a lot of data sets. And data mm-hmm. was a bit. Uh, this is our start of the discussion. How do we free up data? And I remember yeah. the 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 origin of Trice uh, was a product uh, called Mobile Baby. Now that we're talking yes. about moms and babies, and <laughs> yes. and yes. It, it was at the time where you, you, you exactly where you did this whole crusade to you know liberate the the, the baby uh, ultra scan yeah. uh, ultrasound scans and pictures yes. from the ultrasound machine so that we could initially just share them because we want to be happy and share the joy uh, among exactly. family members and friends. But mm-hmm. but ultimately, uh, I think. Uh, I would imagine, and you can tell us more, also that that also helped in in actually making the, those data available for the for the medical purposes and ultimately for the machine learning purposes. Certainly, certainly. I mean, what we've built at Trice is a very effective plumbing system for data. Really, we have built our technology into the leading imaging devices in the market, so that it's very easy to deploy. Pretty much the as easy as to deploy as it is to when you buy a new cell phone, you turn it on and put your Apple ID in. We kind of mimic that in terms of uh, connecting ultrasound machines. So we built a very effective plumbing system. And the plumbing system can either be used to share the data with the patient, as you described, uh, Siad, but also for remote diagnostics and overreads, and eventually to provide access to develop smart technology to enable diagnosis. And it started in women's health. Today we do all types of imaging. We send images and data sets from helicopters and ambulances into the into the ER uh, to make the operating theater ready for the patient. It's used in cardiology, it's used in uh, general imaging, radiology, all over. But that's just, that's how it started. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Kugarin uh, and also I want to you know talk a little bit about more current things before we jump into the future and uh, everybody is thinking that you know there's a new normal coming in and I, I don't like that mm-hmm. word because I don't think things will ever be normal uh, even without the pandemic nothing is normal nowadays so I call it business unusual and and the first of all from now until there is a vaccine and a reliable cure we are going to have to adapt in, in certain ways, and that could last beyond uh, the solution as well. How is health tech uh, helping us, you know, adapt and, and you know, taking an example, for instance, travel and all the testing that needs to happen along the way, and as well as detection, monitoring and tracing. What are you seeing in terms of health tech uh, developments today rapidly that can help us go through this period? Right, right, right. No, there are a lot of uh, point solutions coming, you know, uh, the new normal or the extra uh, uh, business as unusual as you're calling it. I believe wearing masks is going to be staying with us for quite some time. And, uh, you know, so I'm seeing even simple solutions, for instance, we developed for a client uh, in Dubai, actually, where uh, how do you make sure kids are keeping more mask in schools and are the teachers enforcing it and so forth so there's a system you know which can sort of automatically look at all the existing cctv cameras and alert people if uh, somebody is not wearing mask not maintaining social distance so people are starting to use technology to help with uh, in terms of adapting and adhering to some of the uh, secure policies that we have uh, we are seeing solutions uh, for instance 
how do you bring back people to work? And uh, if the policy is that every morning you need to say whether you have certain conditions, uh, you may have to take a test, you may have to get the doctor's opinion, and uh, we are seeing you know, solutions which incorporate telemedicine and uh, uh, remote uh, sort of diagnosis and all of that together in one platform to enable uh, companies to be able to bring back thousands of employees and also avoid the risk. That's an example, right? Um, and I think I've also seen a big rise, to be honest with you, in terms of telemedicine. I think the physicians, from what I hear from my friends and relatives who are doctors, they were asking for things like this for a long time, where if a patient had a question, most of the time they have to come to the hospital to meet a doctor, go through the whole process, then answer that question. And physicians are not really doing extra tests or anything like that at that time. They're really having an interview with the patient and looking at the past record. Why not we do that in video conference? And all of a sudden, you know, there's a huge, huge adoption for that. And uh, so pay, uh, doctors are able to uh, deal with more patients. Uh, patients are able to do it from their comfort of their home and not really risk uh, and uh, increase the opportunity, both for them and others. So uh, I think not necessarily artificial intelligence. I think technologies being used, simple technologies, which are now used for this use case, uh, things which other segments may have been using all the time. Uh, we are seeing an adoption of a lot of these things. And obviously all of this have to be done under the compliance and privacy rules that are there for healthcare. And those are the reasons why uh, adoption always was delayed in healthcare. Uh, but now, you know, to Asa's point, uh, there are a few good things that came out of this COVID. The IT departments were all uh, rushing to put solutions which can uh, help uh, some of the hospitals and uh, stuff like that to stay in business. And that has become a good byproduct in terms of uh, coming up with new technologies. And uh, I would imagine, in addition to, you know, privacy uh, uh, and uh, and other data related issues there was a big component of uh, insurance and uh, that mm. requires people to, to yes. show up at a certain place and for a, sometimes for a physical signature to happen or a physical check uh, also what is your uh, view on that given your push into remote diagnostics from day one so uh, first of all i also think that you know the the virus if it's very democratic. It doesn't care who you are and where you are, if you're gay or straight, black or white, where you live, income or anything. And that provides us with the opportunity to see that we have to care for everyone in order for everyone to be safe. So I think it's a really good foundation to change like the core values of how we, how we look at each other globally and how healthcare is actually uh, made available. So I really, um, that side of the virus, I really appreciate. I do believe that uh, actually also it's expediting uh, networking of providers in a very interesting way where competition or as you described it, Siada, physical signature or coming into a location that had, used to be the norm, that's not necessarily the case anymore. So the healthcare system has to now be more fluid, more open and more networked, which will also make it easier for the patient to move free. So I see a lot of, a lot of positive aspects uh, coming out of that uh, as well. And it has expedited, as you described here, uh, uh, the, in the United States, for example, uh, 
physicians uh, being allowed to practice medicine in more than one state where they're board certified, for example, or telemedicine uh, um, visits being reimbursed without having a first uh, physical meeting between the provider and the patient. Correct. In fact, uh, you know, now I think about it that, uh, you know, we, we issued a paper, paper recently about the future of work and how work is hybrid and, and where, you know, the, the, the employee side of things and, and a few of the technology uh, matters have already been resolved maybe or, or, or can be resolved by, by companies independently. But there is a big regulatory uh, overhaul required to solve a lot of matters in terms of even in the workplace insurance or sick days, etc. So I can only imagine the impact of that on the whole healthcare regulatory uh, env- environment. Um, you know, lots of unusual stuff to, to, to look at in the future. I opened the door. I know we have a few live uh, uh, listeners and uh, viewers. So in case they are interested to start sending questions, uh, ahead of our final Q&A, please do so uh, in the comments section uh, on your browser. In the meantime, I want to talk about the future a little bit. And um, from, uh, you know, two, 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 uh, two angles or two different questions I'll ask. I'll, I'll start with, with one that is uh, a little bit uh, uh, less futuristic or, or more imminent, which is, you know, from what I see also, and the way you mentioned that now I can set up my medical equipment the same way I set up uh, an iPhone mm-hmm. and a nod to, you know, the recent uh, uh, iPhone launched a couple of days ago. Uh, are we moving into an internet of healthcare things? Uh, is that where we're going to get, where things start talking a little bit more? You said you're laying the piping. For me, it feels like you're Cisco in 1997 right now. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Is, or, or is it a bit more advanced than this? I would you know, invest. I think, you're ab- <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I do believe also that there's another trend or angle that's consumerification of healthcare or medical devices. The way uh, companies, hardware and software, communicate with us as people is actually finding its way in how the device manufacturers and software manufacturers are thinking and developing products for medical professionals. The healthcare IT systems of the past are very different from the ones that are coming up now. So you see more influence from uh, Apple or other uh, younger software companies influencing medical device and medical software. Uh, that's the, that's definitely definitely the case. I can look at my uh, Apple Watch today, which has an electrocardiogram in it. Although there are 10, 10 disclaimers mm-hmm. why I shouldn't really just mm-hmm. trust it, but it's there. And mm-hmm. yesterday I posted about my mm-hmm. oldest, uh, roughly my oldest currently still functioning gadget. And it was an iPod Nano from 2010, mm-hmm. which could double... Uh, eventually as a wristwatch because somebody thought of doing a strap for it. It, it wasn't yeah. meant to be mm-hmm. a, as a wristwatch, as a smartwatch, but the nice thing about it is even back then it had a pedometer in it, so it could count the steps mm-hmm. in one way or the other. So that's, you know, one uh, you know con- kind of vector of this evolution that is uh, uh, happening, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the last 10 years. What do you see from your side, uh, Gogarin, on, on, on that communication between machines and, and, and the consumer electronic aspect that OSA brought? Yeah, yeah. So the, I think the consumer electronics uh, uh, being capable of doing all of these things uh, is actually a great blessing, in my opinion, uh, mm-hmm. because 
in healthcare honestly a lot of the technology advancements are not possible because of lack of data because of data from the past patients that you can use to build things and uh, for the future it's locked because of regulations like hipaa it's locked because of lack of plumbing as what as i was talking about it's all hidden somewhere right i think the way to radically change that is really to flip the economics of it if you flip the economics of it and say hey you the patient you have your data if you share your data i'm willing to pay you some money right mm-hmm. and that will eventually solve some of the regulatory issues also in between and the patients will start giving uh, their data not just the interest of uh, trying to uh, improve science and treatment plans i think you know there's a monetary uh, reason why they are willing to share their data and uh, i think once once that happens and obviously you know in all these health applications which they are there part of their personal devices knowingly or unknowingly they are sharing it and i think uh, over a period of time if you look at even privacy concerns uh, you know people my age have a different thought of the privacy concerns and millennials such as my kids they actually don't think that's a big deal to share whatever personal information they have because the products and services that they are getting in return are very relevant and very useful for them and uh, the devices uh, which are uh, transmitting heart rates and uh, cardiograms and then there are very custom specific treatment devices people are putting to monitor their blood sugar for instance or they are wearing a heart monitor all of them are there and uh, even after that the data is you know really getting locked uh, either in uh, uh, providers in hospitals and what not or they are locked in some systems uh, they are not bubbling up as fast as one would uh, like to in terms of being able to build systems that can help the community uh, in the future but you know people are all trying different angles and uh, i am uh, uh, very positive that that's going to come up uh, soon where as soon as you know the patient is not caring too much the rest of the people in the middle cannot stop it for a long time right right now they are blocking it and i think the democratizing of the data will help uh, uh, in the future of healthcare i guess there is you know always a, a, a trade off to be done and it has been about convenience like we've been willing to give a lot of our private data away for some convenience uh, in the case for instance of of mobile baby to start with osa it was giving away some data maybe in in the sake of some uh, you know uh, uh, some personal uh, gratification or a dopamine hit which we see a lot now uh, when we look at at the social media element and you know that uh, fantastic uh, documentary that's making netflix top charts nowadays social dilemma Yeah. Uh, tell, tell me your opinion think, also before we jump. I think and this might be I might get hit now but I think the actually the the people that have a real issue with this are physicians or providers that are worried about um malpractice and the insurance companies. I'm sorry to say this so bluntly. Uh the patients are willing to do this for the benefit of being empowered. having access to their own data being able to choose provider being able to change provider you know today in the most advanced parts of the world you still have to go in and get a cd or a printout with your x-rays and then you try to f- f- figure out a way how to get a cd into your new app product it doesn't work the patients are willing to do this if the payoff is empowerment control freedom 
and a possibility to choose provider. So um, I think we kind of got this a little backwards. I guess that, that you know the, the 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 direction that uh, ultimately should happen is that that control and that value that you put on your own data uh, remains within your uh, realm as a person, as an individual, and is not just uh, floated around uh, outside and being monetized by others. And the, you know Sorry. the next question uh, I had, which was about the future, going back to Gogarin's uh, point, at you know still having uh, you know some. Uh, possibility of false positives or negatives uh, using AI alone. And I was listening to uh, a podcast the other day when they mentioned a new law. You know, we had Moore's law, which predicted that uh, computing powers doubles every every generation or every year and a half in mm-hmm. terms of silicon. And now uh, Huang's law, who is the founder of NVIDIA, was predicting that artificial intelligence capability is also doubling every every year, year and a half. So. Yeah. Given given that scenario, if it is true, uh, how fast do you think, uh, G, we can get to a point where we don't need a, a, a second opinion or where AI is no longer the second opinion, it is actually the opinion? It is actually the opinion. I, I think in uh, healthcare, I'm not a physician, but uh, looking at uh, how uh, things change, uh, the variables are too many. Uh, it's not a uh, very binary solution, right? Even the diagnosis of a disease, uh, people are not just making it only because your blood said this, I think you have this disease. Uh, there are so many intuition and experience and multiple variables going on. Um, I, I, I am a technologist and I should be more optimistic, but I, in this situation, I'm actually hoping that the human beings don't go away for a long time. I think you know there's uh, there's something to be said about uh, uh, the doctors having the experience and being able to uh, come up with the correct diagnosis. Having said that, I think I'm already seeing areas where uh, human beings are replaced in the healthcare system. Right? If you go to, uh, for instance, uh, some of the hospitals which have deployed this robot, you go there. The initial things such as taking your temperature, all of that is done by this machine. You know, you go there and it will take a scan of you and uh, it does that. So wherever it's really able to break it down into binary, I think they do that. And, uh, you know, I was speaking to my brother-in-law who's a cardiologist about this. And uh, he said when uh, he gets the reports these days, it's already coming up with all these measures and saying, you know, uh, your level is at 34 uh, points. And his point was, even if the system's making a mistake and it says it's 20, when it was 30, if it was taking 34, you know, that's the best that even I can do sometimes because I have to compute so many variables and come up with it. And I think so slowly but steadily when people identify variables where even a human being judgment will have that degree of error and that degree of error is acceptable in this simple task, I think that's how it will go. It will keep building one task after the other, which can be completely automated. And then eventually, I think uh, they may let uh, certain diseases to be totally diagnosed and returned and prescribed and given by uh, computers and machines and robots and uh, things like that. Uh, but, if, uh, you know, honestly, I think we are a very long away, long time away. Uh, from that happening, uh, uh, robots taking over our entire healthcare, uh, but it may happen faster in things like uh, uh, automated driving, for instance. That I'm thinking uh, during my lifetime, I'm going to drive a car, which is going to be completely 100% age uh, machine driven, as an example. Yeah. 
And uh, also, yeah. what is the view from uh, Stockholm on that? So technology is very rarely the problem, right? We're really very good at developing technology. I think that the, here the boundaries are more the human mind. Uh, what's our attitude and how willing are we to actually put our lives in the hand of something that we can't even understand what it is? That's where I think the boundaries currently, currently lies. And, uh, but if you, kind of, you think about it, isn't that self-driving car, G? Isn't that even maybe even safer than the very faulty machine that we are? Like, I, I think I'm better off a self-driving car than the one that I'm playing. Uh, so it's like this um, yes. mind-bottling game. Uh, what's really, what is really the safest way, uh, uh, safest way here? And I also think another very important perspective is we're always looking at this human versus machine or human or machine. What if we're talking about machine or nothing? There's a lot of places in the world where we're not talking about a white coat being replaced. We're talking about nothing, right. putting something in place instead of nothing. And I think in that context, it's different, right? Yes. We at least have yeah. to talk to talk about talk about it from other other perspective, other ethical perspectives that we're doing in the world where we're actually talking about people being afraid of the white coat coats losing their power. In fact, arguably, you know, this is one particular sector where we, 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 we can't say anything because already the sector was clogged, it was slow, they had issues in multiple countries in terms of how fast the system could process and how long you have to wait to get an appointment sometimes. So even in very developed countries, we had issues that AI is solving. And as you said, also in completely emerging markets where there is not even possibility to access healthcare, technology could make healthcare uh, much more accessible. Absolutely. And there's also so, so much of healthcare's issue that is not nothing to do with the actual clinical work. You know, everything that has to do with patient flow, productivity on machines, uh, workforce uh, optimization, all that stuff where we can get more out of the time that the healthcare provider has to offer instead of putting nine minutes of burning a CD or uploading data manually into health record, stuff like that could be automated based on artificial intelligence so that the healthcare workers can actually work with people, comfort people, help people, you know, do what they're really, I guess one day when they started med school was kind of the driver of doing the job. See what I mean? We could more of the time could be spent on caring for people instead of dealing with tech. Excellent. Great. I have a question from the audience here from Avo in Beirut, and he's asking us if you know how uh, artificial intelligence and technology within your areas or outside is being used to get us closer to find the, the vaccine. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could answer that. <clears throat> G, can you? Uh, yeah, I think uh, in terms of the uh, vaccine, uh, there's a lot of artificial intelligence, to be honest, that came into play in terms of uh, uh, being able to accelerate that process. Um, so, number one, uh, you know, uh, I read somewhere when somebody did a search on uh, previous scientific literature uh, which are relate which are discussing topics related to the current vaccine as well as the current therapeutic candidates which are under evaluation there are millions of them right so 
people were using uh, natural language processing to really make sense out of this huge, vast amount of uh, unstructured text data which was there in several places and come up with uh, even you know theoretical uh, treatments uh, based on the past mm -hmm. history that could work uh, that you know the, there are so many uh, open source type of activities going on in that and uh, i as a matter of fact i know in pharmaceutical companies uh, that was a huge effort in terms of cutting down the research time required to uh, arrive at some solutions and uh, they went into vaccine research and uh, so forth and um, I think you know there's also um, what do you call the uh, interactions and uh, the findings from one country and one institute and how do you bring them all together and create a common database of uh, test and uh, also uh, patient information. All of that sharing, you know, it's a combination of AI as well as. Uh, uh, other technologies uh, which are uh, being used, uh, which have come. Then I've also uh, come across cases where CT scans, right? And uh, we spoke a lot about how uh, technology can help with uh, diagnosis. In this case, it really uh, came up and because people were all able to upload CT scans of patients from around the world and quickly computer systems were able to decide and triage what, which one is useful in terms of the research and finding out. Yeah. Uh, there are even some uh, COVID uh, telemedicine type of tools which have come up. All of this, mm -hmm. you know, fastly evolving and uh, it's not like uh, uh, scientifically proven or at least not proven in the way typically medicines come out. But people uh, developed uh, systems where you can call a phone and cough into it. And based on the intensity of your cough and the way in which you cough, in comparison to all the other coughs which they got from COVID people, they were giving some some indications. Okay, this could be COVID, and maybe you want to go take a test. Um, so there, there are a lot of uh, uh, applications happening in terms of uh, predicting new outbreaks based on the uh, uh, infection in a certain zip code and which zip code is going to be coming up with the virus quickly. Uh, we talked about the diagnosis, medical research, and then uh, it's also, you know, in terms of reopening of the economies, in terms of using AI applications to balance out the public health and the economy. These are all used by different agencies. I mean, would I give them all uh, A plus in their efforts? No, I think the governments failed us, really. There are so many technologies and uh, people capable of doing all this and we could have potentially avoided a lot of deaths and uh, confusions if all of that was streamlined together. So it was not really a lack of technology in many cases. It was a lack of policy and lack policy. of uh, coordination uh, that didn't go into the place. Yeah. And I have a question from Mira, uh, who's in Texas and asking how can technology help with contact tracing uh, and notification in particular, you know, tracing and keeping the information for our own might not be as uh, useful if we don't get it to the right people, whether the concerned or people around them. So I don't know, Osa, if you have seen anything around that, because particularly you being between the US and Sweden, you are experiencing two different uh, ideologies in the way we are dealing with COVID today. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> very, very different. Very, very different. I'm not sure that I got the question, but oh, it's, it was really tiny to read on the screen. Um, 
How can technology help with contact tracing to ensure that exposed people are notified in a timely manner? Oh, a very good question. The way it's done currently when you travel is for sure not efficient. Basically, you, you fill out a piece of paper, which is often handed you to you in the local language. Uh, and then when you board an, um, a deep plane and a plane and deep plane, you, your temperature is taken and they scribble it down on a piece of paper. And then you have to say what seat you were in. That's as advanced as it, as it is currently. And I bet yeah, that yeah. is that's not even up to par with how things should be done 20 years ago. So, Mira, I think just with a small step forward, tying this to a passport identification or something, it could be a, a tiny, tiny little step, but it can have a huge impact. Currently, I, I would imagine if, if I would have been on a flight where there would have been an outbreak of, of, of COVID, that, that would be almost impossible to trace people down to where they've been seated and, and where they've been going after, etc. That right. uh, also links, I guess, to the regulation and policies. Well, if that was uh, resolved already, you know, tracing via mobile applications would have been much more uh, simpler to implement without uh, many issues. I see a couple more questions before we uh, log off today. It's an interesting one. I don't know if we can answer it from Diviga. And the uh, question is, if AI is trained with the help of past data, Gugarin, uh, as we see new diseases coming in now, how fast can we, uh, you know, train new algorithm to, to resolve new problems? Do right. you have an answer for that? Oh, very um, interesting. I, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, um, uh, the new disease coming and new treatments coming up has always been the case, right? And how human beings were doing it. They were looking at past data, comparing it with present data, and then saying, hey, based on whatever this happened, this is new, but these are all the similarities that happened in the past. And then, you know, just like any research problem, you guess a model and then try to validate that model and then test that model and keep going. So, uh, you know, can if just because AI is based on the past, uh, will it be able to solve future? The answer is yes. You know, it may not be able to exactly come up with a solution, it can actually process much more information and come up with multiple candidates to solve the new problem. And then obviously you have to go through uh, systems to fine tune it. And after that, you can use it uh, to train, you know, when the problem is sol uh, solved. I see huge potential here, huge potential, because first of all, most research today starts from scratch, even though we have uh, accumulated insight as humans, but it starts from scratch, right? And there is very limited databases. If there's databases, they're mostly national ones and very disease specific. But when we start accumulating all this data and make it processable, like a human atlas, if you will, like uh, this um, database of multiple vital signs and legacy data, then we've come to a very high threshold of information. But we have all the background variables checked, if you will. So every new research doesn't have to start from scratch. It starts from this very high level of indexed information and knowledge about the human system. Very good. Again, it's, talk... it's actually mind-blowing. It's a really interesting question. This is interesting that we, we, we close, you know, with this whole idea of democratizing uh, data, you know, Having started with a very democratic uh, disease mm -hmm. that we're experiencing today, uh, we tackled about. many 
interesting topics on on today's call and uh, podcast and uh, i think we will we will continue the discussion offline i encourage all of our viewers and listeners later to engage with us on social media we're all out there on linkedin on on uh, twitter and uh, if you have the chance to be on uh, on instagram make sure to follow Osa as well she has a very interesting feed there mm. and uh, I <laughs> thank you both for uh, for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to 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 see you again, both of you. Hope we can catch up soon, face to face. Until then, we we still have a lot of screen time to, to share between each other. Uh, and uh, good luck. Have a great day. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank CS. you so much. Thank so you, nice Asa. to meet you, G. Same Bye, here. everyone. Bye, Asa. Yeah. Bye.